Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, well, she's in the chat room right now. She's chatting up a great deal with all of those folks that are coming in. So, Ravinder, tell us all about your chat room. Yes, we have a good chat room, great conversation, a few laughs along the way, but we learn a lot in the process. So if you can, do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss the value of opinions, testimonials, uh, you know, the way other people think and how it impacts us. When someone offers an unsolicited testimonial, With no expectation of reward, what are we to think? Assume a product receives multiple five-star reviews. Does that mean the product is really as great as the folks reporting the claim? If testimonials have any value, how are we to know that the seller is not seeding the testimonials in an effort to inflate the product's success with customers? In my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, I discuss the influence of testimonials group opinion and how they impact us, the hows and whys, and sometimes the nefarious abuses employed by the merchants behind them. Bottom line, research has repeatedly demonstrated that if the masses believe one way, we are influenced so much by their insistence that we can sometimes deny our own senses. One study demonstrates this very well and has been repeated numerous times. The study protocol goes like this. Recruit recruit the use of eight confederates who will report as you wish and then select one subject for the experiment. Show the now nine people lines that are unequal, but perhaps close or organized in such a way as to give the possible appearance of an optical illusion. Then pose the question, which line is longest. The subject will usually correctly identify the longest line the first time or two. But when all others openly disagree and point to another line, soon the subject will fall in line, pun intended, and choose the shorter line in agreement with the group. Not only that, they will defend their reasoning for doing so if questioned. In other words, What the mob agrees to must be true sort of thinking gains more traction than we might want to admit. And much of this is unconsciously orchestrated. Testimonials are not evidence, period, full stop. The fact is compelling personal testimonials can often dissuade a person from hearing credible scientific evidence. Psychologists call this problem in belief formation the vividness effect. Now, this has nothing to do with intelligence per se. It's more a matter of critical or rational thinking. As Keith Stanovich puts it in his paper, The Development of Rational Thought, A Taxonomy of Heuristics and Biases, quote, Intelligence tests are good measures of how well a person can hold beliefs in short-term memory and manipulate those beliefs. But they do not assess whether a person has the tendency to form beliefs rationally when presented with evidence. Similarly, intelligence tests are good measures of how efficiently a person processes information that has been provided, but they do not assess whether the person is a critical assessor of information as it is gathered in the natural environment. Close quote. We live at a time when the media is becoming the mob, and by that I mean if they say something is true, too many of us simply accept it as fact. The problem is much of what is reported in the media today is false. Moreover, 
more and more members of the media are no longer objective journalists working to get us the facts, but rather hard at work trying to sell us their agenda. Please allow me to ask a question recently posed by Michael Shermer. Have you ever noticed that when you present people with facts that are contrary to their deepest held beliefs, they always change their minds? Me neither. In fact, people seem to double down on their beliefs in the teeth of overwhelming evidence against them. This is called the backfire effect, and it happens when people perceive their worldview to be under threat by conflicting information. The psychology underneath the backfire effect is called cognitive dissonance, or that uncomfortable feeling you get when a deeply held belief is contradicted by the facts. There has probably been no time in the past that requires more rational thinking than today. My suggestion, don't buy a product, a proposition, or anything else without diligently researching it for yourself. And then don't be afraid to be the one in nine who speaks out with the correct length of line. It would also be good to simply put your own biases and desires on hold and truly listen to the opposite arguments. You may just learn something that changes your mind. I know I have. I think the ability to learn, which may include changing your mind about your own ideas and biases, is really the highest form of intelligence. My thoughts, Ravinder, what are yours? I just have to totally agree with you there. You know, people are so stuck in their ideas these days. You know, they're following their cr the crowd. It's like they've turned off their own thinking abilities. Um, so, no, I think if you want to see how open-minded or intelligent you are, just take a look and see when was the last time you heard something that changed your mind. That's, I think that's, that's a huge part of it. So, yeah, practice listening. You know, turn your own thoughts off for a little bit and actually hear what the other person is saying rather than rehearsing your answers in order to, you know, fight your particular battle. Listen. Listen. You can learn a lot. Well said. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you, you play in making our show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Colin Campbell. Now, here's, here is an example of facts that I did not want to accept. But after all the research, I had to say, the guy's got this one right. And, and, I, and you know, I, I, I'm going to come back and say, sometimes we have biases that are so strong that we just insist on not hearing alternative approaches. And, and I was guilty of that. I admit that uh, he has changed my mind. Tom wrote, I too resisted Campbell's diet until I learned I was a serious risk for heart disease. I decided to try it, and now my doctor tells me I have nothing to worry about. Just keep doing whatever I'm doing. Daniel wrote, I don't know who or what to believe anymore. There are so many claims and refutations of claims. I think it's all about money, like Dr. Taylor says. CB commented that, that people give a green light to information they want to hear, read, believe and that the very pushers of same said information were caught sucking up the spoon-fed biased garbage and passing it along. Does it really matter who is spoon-feeding when even the jaded are caught sucking on the preferred spoon? That's a pretty good tongue twister, CB. Richard responded, Yes, of course it matters. The fake news has made too many cynical and unwilling to discriminate throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The big reason we are to be educated in science is so that we won't be dumb about the, how the process works and unable to discern for ourselves how to discriminate and observe. Now, for our listening audience, listen, both of those last two comments come out of our chat room. Often material out of the chat room is material that feeds our radio show, including the questions that are there. So, Ravinder, encourage those folks to get into that chat room. It's a great chat room. I cannot, you know, speak more highly of it. I learn something almost every single time from the chat room, plus the fact we have a bit of a laugh as well, and that's always good. 
Do you change your mind every single time or you just learn something new? I'm teasing. Beth wrote, I bought the book, <laughs> and if his diet works, I'll let you know. Well, the science, Beth, is rigorous, and no one as yet has met my challenge to find one solid scientific piece of research that counters Campbell's findings. But do try it. The proof is in the pudding. Moving on, James commented, My daughter was never able to take exams successfully. Sometimes she would become so upset that she would walk out in the middle of a test. I got your Intertalk exams program and told her to use it for 30 days every day for an hour before she took her next midterm. She told me that she never felt so relaxed when she took the test, and she did very well on it. I told my dentist about your programs because his son could not sleep. He got your Sleep Soundly program, and the boy easily fell asleep during the first night. He has been a good sleeper ever since. I can't thank you enough for all that you do. By the way, I have one of your very first cassettes purchased back in 1984. Your work makes a tremendous difference, and I am grateful. Well, thank you, James. Thank you very much. I'm truly honored by your words, and I will do my best to live up to them. We like those kinds of comments don't we i do that's the best that's what makes it all worthwhile all right that's all the time we're going to take for letters today but i do invite you to opine by emailing me at eldon that's e-l-d-o-n at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on facebook we sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback now to this week's show the boy who knew too much with kathy bird imagine your child comes to you with stories of a prior life what do you do do you dismiss them as fantasy or check them out? Many parents have been faced with exactly this situation, and national news is ever ready to cover these stories. Today, we all are aware, thanks to the media, of the young man who remembered being a pilot in World War II, the James Leiniger case. Well, on this week's show, we have the mother of a young man who has also remembered his prior life, or did he? I ask that question because we also all remember the hypnotically recovered memories of the case known as the Bridie Murphy story, and that turned out to be fiction. How do we discern the real from the false? That is a question for today's show. So let me tell you a little about our guest. Kathy Bird is a busy realtor and mother of two young children who never had aspirations of becoming a writer until her son's. Her son began sharing vivid memories of being a baseball player in the 1920s and 30s. When she is not busy writing or selling homes, the most likely place to find Kathy is on the baseball field in Southern California. Except that I understand they're going to make a film out of this, and so we may find her on a Hollywood set. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Kathy Bird. Thank you, Eldon. Thank you it's for that intro. <laughs> it's good to have you on the show. Your book is a, uh, you know, it's an adventure story. It's uh, not what I expected. Uh, it actually reads a little bit like fiction other than, you know, it's it's not. But on this show, we seek to learn three things, Kathy. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, to get some context here, some framing, Let's begin by having you tell us about yourself, beginning with your childhood and, in particularly, your religious upbringing. Okay, and that does come into play in the book because I was raised as a Christian um, and went to Christian churches growing up. Um, so when my son began saying these things, it really did kind of shake my belief and send me um, down some different paths that I hadn't been down before just to explore um, different concepts, but I was raised by my mother. I was an only child, and I always wanted to have children, um, but didn't do that until I was older. I was 38 when my daughter was born, and I was 41 when my son was born. Wow. So as a child, uh, were you interested in paranormal things, uh, or, I mean, were you strict Christian? Uh, did you stray at all, or...? You know what? I was always curious. I grew up in California in the 70s, um, so that contributed a bit. I, I think I probably had a, more of an open mind than had I not been in California. You know, we had things going on here like Est, and, you know, things I knew about things like this, but, you know, as a child. Um, but still, as far as, you know, reincarnation was not something that was 
um, part of my belief system, let's say. Okay, so did it challenge you? I guess that's where I'm going. Did, did, it, did it give rise to uh, fear that maybe there was some demonic aspect to this or something of that nature? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was questioning. It didn't smell like my son just came out one day and said, hey, I was Lou Gehrig. <laughs> you know, it came to us in little clues over time, you know, starting with the fact that he had this prodigious talent for baseball at a very young age. Um, he was discovered by Adam Sandler on YouTube when he was two for a movie role. Um, and right around that same age is when he started saying things to us that were peculiar, um, but not necessarily that I could put my finger on. You know, he he started, when we did the movie with Adam Sandler, it was filmed in Boston, and the Yankees happened to be in town playing the Red Sox. So I took him to a baseball game, and at that time he didn't watch television He'd only been to, this would be his third professional baseball game that he'd ever seen. Um, and when we were at the stadium, he said a strange thing that at the time didn't mean that much to me, but he got really upset when he saw a giant picture of Babe Ruth and started waving his bat and said, I don't like him. He was mean to me. You know, and so I left the stadium, didn't think much about it. We got back home um, and he turned three. So most of the comments he made were right around that time. And he started um, insisting that he was a tall baseball player. And when I would correct him and say, oh, yeah, you will be a tall baseball player, he would, one time he stomped his foot and said, no, I was tall like daddy. And I said, you mean you were a grown-up? And he, he got excited and said, yeah, like I was finally understanding what he was trying to say. Okay, so let, let me, you know, I'm, I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate here and ask maybe some questions that that a skeptic would ask. But okay. uh, there have been a number of hoaxes built upon the idea of reincarnation, and often the stories appear to have been generated with the sole purpose of selling books. I'm not meaning right. to imply in any way, shape, or form that's the instance here, but take, for example, right. the book The Boy Who Saw Heaven, Kevin Malarkey, and his admission later that he'd made it all up. For that matter, Skeptical recently published a number of facts regarding the ABC special titled Back from the Dead, which tend to show this story could also be told without the necessity of some past life memory. So my question, I guess, you know, from from that doubter standpoint is, what is the possibility or likelihood that somehow your boy incorporated information uh, from his environment that gave rise to this uh, this reflection of a story. Right. The comments. I think because you've read the book and you get that I am a skeptic by nature, and I'm yes. still a skeptic. Like, I still question, what was this? And when you read the book, you can see at the end, I don't really say, yes, this was reincarnation and my son was Lou Gehrig. I really leave it open to the reader to interpret but what I do is I reveal all the evidentiary moments that happened in exactly the order they occurred with full integrity. You know, I didn't change one thing. Um, just to, to show you, like, there were some very remarkable things in addition to the things that my son said, just some amazing synchronicities and, you know, facts that came through uh, that were just kind of unexplainable. And so... Really, the way that I leave it is that none of us will actually know what happens when we die, not a pastor, not a rabbi, not a scientist, but we can only get little glimpses and clues, and around that we can form our belief system. So this is something that really shook my belief system and opened my mind to the possibility of reincarnation. And okay. and I say that because, yeah, when I first went to my pastor and, and told him all of the things my son had said, he insinuated that he was possessed by the spirit of a dead person. And so that sent me on a different path. I thought, there's got to be another answer. And so that's when I found Dr. Tucker at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And I found the thousands of cases that they've been documenting. And I'm a really scientific, logical person, so that made sense to me. This, this scientific evidence, evidence made sense to me. Okay, so now... <clears throat> You just spawned two new questions. One of them is, how are those people around you, you know, your friends, your family, your your pastor, you just explained, how are they treating you as a result of your book and admission or 
claims, some would say, that your son is the reincarnation of Lou Gary. And the second part of that question is your son. I assume since you've taken him to a doctor, you've written the book, he's aware at some level, some fully conscious level, that he believes right. he is the reincarnation of Luke. How has he incorporated that into his life? And how does that influence those peers that he goes to school and associates with? Right. Okay. Well, what you're tapping on with these questions is my deepest fear. And that's really what kept me from writing the book um, for a while was what would people think? How would what would be the effects on both of my children, not just my son, but my daughter, too, by thrusting them into this very strange world of saying, hey, I was this person. Um, and so it really took me a lot of courage. And I have to say, I have been, since the book came out, I've been pleasantly surprised because all the reactions I've gotten from people who've read it have been very positive. I have yet to have somebody, you know, personally attack me over anything in the book. Um, and my son and my daughter have not had any negative repercussions, which is amazing. And my son is very immersed in his current life now, um, and his world still pretty much revolves around baseball. He's, he's a good little baseball player. Um, but I, I'll tell you really what kept us going through the whole thing, what really compelled me to write the book, was what I'm doing in the book is not trying to prove reincarnation is a fact. What I'm trying to do is say these. this is evidence that came through um, and some very remarkable things happen at the end of the book that just confirmed it for me. Um, but what it proves to me more than anything is that our souls survive death um, and that love can surpass one lifetime. And so that's really the message. So even my kids know if someone comes at you and makes fun of you or this, just remember we did this for a higher purpose. We did this to give people hope and faith, um, belief in another dimension out there where our souls go when we die. And they get it. You know, they get why we did it. Okay. Now, you, you spawned another question. You, you remember a past life. Does your boy have any memories whatsoever of uh, in life between lives or the afterlife or, or yeah. for that matter, the suffering that Luke Gehrig went through when he died? Right. Okay, I'm going to answer that question with a story, and I'll make it quick. But when Dr. Tucker from the University of Virginia came to our home, it was very interesting because he started asking my son if he remembered how he died. And that wasn't something I had ever touched upon with him. And he said, um, my body stopped working. And um, then my son followed it up by saying, I chose her to be my mom, and then she got old. Um, and Dr. Tucker said, when did you choose her? And he said, when she was born. He was talking about me. And mm -hmm. then Dr. Tucker said, where were you when you chose her? And he said, in the sky. So then I piped in and I said, well, what happened in between the time that you chose me and the time that you were born? Which would be 41 years if he was saying he chose me when I was born and he was born when I was 41 because I wanted to hear about heaven. Um, and my son said, I don't know. I don't remember that part. And so what's remarkable is Dr. Tucker then said that many of these children who recall past lives also recall choosing their parents. But they don't have vivid memories of that time in between that you're referring to. The veil, the so-called veil. All yeah, right. I, veil. I, I, yeah. I want to move directly into your book and, and, you know, the way you deliver the story. Your son, Christian, was touted as a baseball prodigy by the international media since the age of three. So how did this come about? He did the movie when he was two, and that came out when he was three, and there was a little bit of media and press around that because he did have a baseball-playing role in the movie. It was That's My Boy was the name of the movie. Um, and then he was spotted by Clayton Kershaw. Um, we happened to be at an event, and Clayton Kershaw is the pitcher for the Dodgers, and he saw him playing at the age of three, and Clayton helped him to get a first pitch at a Dodger game. And then when he did that... Um, the Associated Press photographer got an amazing photograph, and it's actually the photo that's on the book cover. Um, and that went viral, and then a lot of his YouTube videos went viral. And now he has like 18 million views on YouTube of his baseball videos. So it, it happened kind of organically, but, um, you know, what was at that time I hadn't shared with anybody except for a few of my closest friends and family 
the stories about Christian telling us about his past life memories. Um, so that, that baseball prodigy stuff was happening, but we weren't telling the other side of the story. It's a great photo. Of, is that actually the photo, or uh, has that right. been airbrushed? It's been, it's been chopped out. So let's say they photoshopped it. They just took the silhouette of the actual photo. But that is your stadium. boy. Right. That's him. And that Gritting his teeth. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's quite a shot. He looks very professional. Now, is it, it's also true that he did better at getting that ball uh, across. He didn't actually get it across the plate, but near the plate than anyone else did. All the celebrities, the grown-ups, etc. <laughs> that year. That's true, right? It was fun. People were yeah. surprised. Let's say uh, that. They clapped it. It was a fun moment. But we have a break, Kathy. When we come back yeah. from the break, we'll pick up the story. We're speaking okay, with Kathy Bird about her son and her new book, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. You can learn more about our guest and her story by visiting her website at kathy-bird.com. We have a video for you in the chat room featuring five-year-old Christian in his first baseball tournament. you want to see this. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. And you can do that again by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Kathy Bird about her son and new book, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. 
You can learn more about our guest and her story by visiting her website at Kathy-Bird, and Bird is spelled B-Y-R-D, dot com, Kathy-Bird dot com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music has been demonstrated to be a primal form of communication, and music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. As such, we can often gain a little extra insight into our guest, sometimes some true self-disclosure, by their selection of the music. Today, we just played Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw. Tell us, Kathy, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? I just love the message in that song, and it's just a song that I hope my kids will always think of me when they hear it, you know, and that they'll stay humble and kind as they go on with their lives, because it's really all that matters, right? The difference we make in the lives of others. And that's also the message of my book, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. (laughs) Well, you chose a perfect song to go along with the message of your book. I've got to give you that. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Let's do this now before we go any deeper. Your your son, uh, Christian, believes that he was Lou Gehrig in a past life. And I'm going to ask you, you know, how you came to that conclusion in some detail and for some evidence in a bit. But many people out there, because Lou Gehrig is more famous for his disease than his baseball playing, know little about him. So tell us about who Lou Gehrig was. Okay, I learned through my research. Um, that he was probably one of the most humble and kind athletes, um, you know, legendary athletes ever to play baseball. Um, And that's also been a great thing because my son has been able to, you know, try to emulate those qualities and see the value in those qualities because he has the highest regard for Lou Gehrig. And and that's all you're going to tell us. I mean, this is one of the greatest baseball players that ever played the game. You know, he set all sorts of records, (laughs) 47 home runs. Yes, yes. I I think his record was just beat by Alex Rodriguez for the most home runs by a Yankee. One of the greatest baseball players of all time. I guess we'll leave it at that. And he and our listeners can look him up if they're interested. Uh, Was not just a great gentleman and a great uh, sports person. He was a great hitter, a great uh, baseman. Uh, this guy did it and did it all and did it uh, so very well. He was loved by everyone. All right, Correct. your son. You did that beautifully. Yes. Pardon? You did that beautifully. Yeah. yeah. Your son, um, if I understood you correctly, uh, at age of three is telling you that uh, – you know, he is Lou Gehrig. When did he first say something? I mean, how old was he when he first indicated to you that he was a baseball player in a previous life? Okay. Well, the, the, when he said I was a tall baseball player, I was tall like Daddy, um, that was right around when he turned three. And then what really caught my attention was a couple months later, we were in a hotel. I'm sorry, in an elevator. And he looked at the elevator and he said, Mommy, this elevator kind of looks like a hotel. And I said, Yeah, it kind of does. And he said, when I was a tall baseball player, when I was tall like Daddy, I used to stay in hotels almost every night. And I said, oh, did you fly on airplanes? You know, kind of joking. And he said, no, mostly trains. And so what I did is I would take these little clues that he gave me, like he had a real aversion to Babe Ruth, and then he told me he traveled on trains. And I took all of these little things and put them together together. Um, and then when I reached out to another woman who studies children's past lives, her name is Carol Bowman, she's the one who suggested that I show him photographs of Babe Ruth's baseball teams um, and just see if he would talk or what he had to say um, and ask him questions. So I asked him one day, um, do you see any players in this photo who don't like Babe Ruth? And in every photo, he pointed to a tall, stocky guy with dimples, who I didn't know at the time was Luke Eric. Um, and then he pointed at the same guy and said, that's me. And I still was questioning all of this at the time. I was early in my journey to figure this out. Um, but then Carol told me to show him photographs of Luke Eric's family, and I did that. And he was able to identify the names of the parents. 
He told me to give him a fictitious list of names and see if he could pick out the real names. And he was able to do that. Um, and then he looked at a photograph of Lou Gehrig's mother and said, why weren't you there then? I like you better. And then a few minutes later, he said, you were her. <laughs> so not only was my son telling me that he was Lou Gehrig, he was telling me that I was his mother when he was Lou Gehrig, which I really didn't pay much attention to that because I thought it was just his way of reconciling the past with the present. Um, but the second half of my book kind of delves into that more. And that's where that evidence came out that really changed my belief was around the life of Lou Gehrig's mother. All right. Now, we'll get to that. But he said earlier that uh, Babe Ruth was mean to him. Now, he broke right. Babe Ruth's record, uh, I think, in the late 20s. So they were competitors, even though they played on the same team. Did he ever flesh that out and tell you how Babe Ruth was mean to him? Right. Well, he when he was younger, he just used words like that. And then as he got older, like I want to say he was five years old or so, when he said, Babe Ruth was a very jealous man. And I said, really? And I said, why was Babe Ruth jealous? And he said, because he wasn't related to Lou Gehrig's mother. And then I went on to research. There was a feud between Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. Um, they didn't speak for the last seven years of Lou Gehrig's life. They were kind of estranged. Even though they played on the same team together, they did not speak to each other. And I found out later by digging a little deeper that it was a feud between Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig's mother. So everything that Christian told me, what would happen is he would tell me these things, and then I would go research it and find out that it was historically accurate. And it would just, you know, kind of get me believing him, because I was the biggest skeptic, I have to tell you. Even if I was writing these things down that he was telling me, I wasn't really believing it. Okay, so you've got us right to the edge here now. You don't really believe it. What tipped you over? What made you believe it? Um, what tipped me over, okay, there were, I mean, there were many other things he said, too. Like, he told me that he played his games during the day because there were no lights at the time. And he told me that he wore metal cleats. He was very fascinated with metal cleats. Um, but he didn't wear batting helmets. Um, so there were many, you know, little clues that he gave us as it went by. Um, but it was really when Dr. Tucker came to our home and he said that he chose me to be his mother, combined with the fact that he had always told me that I was Lou Gehrig's mother, um, it kind of sent me to ask Dr. Tucker some questions about past life regressions, which is something also that I was really uncomfortable with because of my religious beliefs. Um, and Dr. Tucker didn't condone regressions, but he was open-minded about it. And he said there's some really amazing historical details that have come through regressions that are very difficult to explain. And so I ended up doing a past life regression about four days after Dr. Tucker was here. I just called someone and went and did it, expecting nothing. Um, and what came through was very, very detailed information around the life of Lou Gehrig's mother, where I was under hypnosis, I was speaking in the first person, and I have these recordings. Um, I actually put the transcripts on my website. You can read through how the questions were asked and how I answered the questions. Um, but really, the details that came through were so amazing through these regressions as, as me being the mother of Lou Gehrig. Um, just the incredible details that I could, some of them I could only confirm through death certificates of other children that she'd had or her own death certificate. Like I described her death in detail. Just things that I would have never known, you know. Like you were saying, maybe Christian picked these things up from other means. Um, but even when Christian, he was so young, and he did not watch television. He was in my care all of the time. So I knew with him that there was no other way that he could be getting the information. And I knew with the regressions that these were things that there's no way that I could have known. Even after I did some research, these were not things that I could just have found on the Internet. Okay, now I just got to be devil's advocate here for a second. Okay, By the like time it. you have a hypnotic regression, you are familiar that your son has already said that you were Lou Gehrig's mother. You've been exposed Correct. to information about Lou Gehrig's mother. A lot of the information you would have been exposed to, you're not going to consciously remember. Um, right. Any, any more than we remember everything, you know, that we're exposed to. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't reside somewhere in our minds waiting right. to, well hypnotic revivification often actually just as with Bridie Murphy brings mm -hmm. out information we're not consciously aware of but right. we were exposed to 
So is there a possibility that that's the right. instance in your situation in your mind? Right. So I'm with you. So even when I was under hypnosis, I, your, your logical mind is in there chattering and saying, oh, this is all stuff you know. And But I will say, I did three past life regressions. I had about six hours of recordings. And in the very last regression, I described a family that I lived with in detail. I described a house the floor plan of the house, what the driveway looked like, what the house looked like, where the kitchen was, where I sat on the couch and did crossword puzzles and knit with my dog by my side, and I had a bird in a cage. And I described the people that lived in the home um, that I lived with, and there was a 7-year-old little girl with short brown hair and a 10-year-old little boy, and the mother was, was a good friend of mine, and the little kids were like grandchildren to me. And I described going to baseball games and bringing cookies, and what happened later is what really got me is I went on a mission, you know, to go find these people. I thought, you know what, if these people exist and they can verify the things that came out of my regression, one of the main things that came out was, was the hypnotist asked me or the past life regression therapist asked me, do you own anything? And I said, well, I have a trunk full of some things and I described jewelry. And I said, I want to give it to the little girl, but I'll have to give it to her mom to hold on to until she gets older. I described a charm bracelet from Japan, a watch, and a pennant with a jade, or a necklace with a jade pennant on it. So I thought, if I find these people, and these people actually have that jewelry, that's when I'll be convinced. It's almost like I gave a challenge to God, and I said, okay, this is how you'll get me. If you can prove that this is right, I'll, I'll buy into the whole thing. <laughs> so I went on a mission. I found these people. Um, I found there was two kids that she lived with with a family, and they were 7 and 10, the same ages that I described when she lived with them. There's no way I could have known that it's not published anywhere. Um, the only way I even found these people was I went to the Hall of Fame library into the archives of documents that you know the general public doesn't even have access to. I was able to get all of the records, um, Lou Gehrig's legal documents and, and his mother's legal documents, and I found a memo that said that the Hall of Fame was going to be sending copies of photographs to a family in Connecticut. So I got the name of these people. I found, you know, I found an obituary of the man who died, who the memo was to, and found out that he had two kids. Um, one was a 70-year-old realtor in Connecticut, and the other one was a 73-year-old pastor in North Carolina. And I really did not want to contact the pastor because um, of my experience with my own pastor. I thought, okay, now I'm going to call this guy and say, my son thinks he was Luke Garrick, and I did these past life regressions, and do you have this jewelry? So I first called the sister, um, and she said to me that she was quite young when Luke Garrick's mother lived with them, but she did confirm that Luke Garrick's mother lived with them, um, like I have seen in my regressions. She said she didn't remember much. Um, but that her brother would probably remember more. So then I reached out to the pastor um, and kind of got to know him before I broke the story to him. I just told him I was interested in the life of Lou Gehrig's mother. Um, but I eventually, our second phone call, I think, I decided I'm just going to tell him everything. And so he listened, and at the end of the call, he, or the, once I finished, I held my breath and I said, so what do you think? And he said, well... You know, he explained that he did have that, they do have that jewelry that I described, that the watch went to him, and that the other jewelry that I described went to his sister. Um, and he said that this is an example of knowledge and wisdom that come, cannot come from rational experience, but it comes from being in the flow of the channel of God. And so because he was a Methodist pastor and didn't believe in reincarnation and doesn't believe in reincarnation, um, the, the way he interpreted it is that my son's Christian was channeling Lou Gehrig, and that I was channeling Lou Gehrig's mother because they needed closure in their relationship. So, I mean, even he says that this information that came through, there's no way, you know, it's unexplainable in this physical world that we live in. Um, but it really is. I, I think there's nothing wrong with interpreting it however you want to interpret it, whether you believe in reincarnation or whether you believe in channeling. But you have to see that there's something very sacred and profound happening when this information comes through. When you, when you read the whole story, you probably understand it better. I've got to ask you, your, from your own perspective, is your son, or were the two, are the two of you, were the two of you channeling, or do you believe it's a case of reincarnation? 
Yeah, you know what? I go with my son. We had a lot of um, news crews here for a couple of weeks when my book came out. We had Inside Edition, ABC News. We were on the doctors. And so my son, you know, they would ask me, so do you think your son was Lou Gehrig? And I would beat around the bush a bit because I still have a hard time saying it. Um, but I would, you know, eventually say, you know, as a mother, you really, I, I just feel that I need to listen to my child. And then they would ask my son. They would go up in his bedroom and they'd see a picture of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and say, so do you think you were Lou Gehrig? And he'd say, yeah. <laughs> like he would answer right away. No problem. So I don't know why I have such an issue saying it, but I think it's because I don't want to alienate people who just really cannot even fathom the idea of reincarnation because I think our story has so much more to it that I'd like people to kind of just go into it knowing I'm not trying to convince them of anything, but just to, to listen. Like the whole premise of your show, I love that. Like suspend your beliefs for a moment and just be open-minded and see what happens. All right. I am detecting, and you correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> that you're still a woman of faith. I guess I'm looking for a better way to say that, but you right. still have some strong Christian views. And and perhaps right. the fact that your son has not yet been so inculcated with the ideas or limitations that are inherent to any mm-hmm. given organized system, he's more willing to accept that he's Lou Gehrig. But let's assume for the moment that you are, unless you're not, please correct me if you're not still a spiritual. Okay. If you're, how did you, I mean, how do you resolve that? Here are your sons. I mean, some way you've got to put reincarnation into your faith. How do you do that? Okay. So that, I do go on a journey there too. And I, the way that I reconciled it for myself was by looking at the history of religion and going back to the time of Constantine, um, which I know you probably know all about this, but I didn't know about it before I started doing my research, um, was when the church and state were combined in 325 A.D., um, and the Bible was made accessible to all people in English um, from Latin. They took out scriptures. Anything that referred to rebirth or reincarnation was removed from the Bible. And that's why we see glimpses of these scriptures through the mystical religions, through Judaism, through the Kabbalah, and through Christian mysticism. Um, You know, we see it in other religions all the time, right? It is a majority belief in the world, reincarnation. Um, But that's really what what helped me to reconcile it um, was when I realized that perhaps this guilt that I was feeling around reincarnation may go back thousands of years um, to this time. And in 385 AD, for example, it was a crime punishable by death to even speak about rebirth or reincarnation. So perhaps our religious institutions carry this. Um, and that could be, even when I went to my pastor, why he said, you know, religious scholars, religious scholars are very aware that reincarnation offered another way out. And so the third ecumenical council at Nicaea was actually charged with removing any references to it, and yet there's still a couple of references in the Bible, um, including, right. you know, it was written, uh, well, and I, we'll end up going somewhere else, and we're, uh, we're short time. I don't want to do that. Oh, I love this. I should have called you when I was doing my research, because this was all new to me. Oh, well, maybe we'll chat about that in a different show. <laughs> 20th Century right. Fox bought your movie rights. When do we Correct. expect to see the movie, and is Christian going to star in his own role? Well, he's too old now, so that's the bummer. So if anybody knows a left-handed little three- or four-year-old baseball player, let us know. Um, The screenplay is being written now um, by Randy Brown, who wrote the movie Miracles from Heaven with Jennifer Garner, and he also wrote the movie Trouble with the Curve, a baseball movie with Clint Eastwood. Um, They're going to be casting this summer and hopefully shooting next year and having it come out as soon as the fall of 2018. That sounds great. I, I look forward to it. How old is your boy now? He's now eight. He's at baseball camp as we speak. He's at baseball camp, so he's still very much a baseball player. I, I, it's a wonderful read. It, it is. It's fun to hear the story, and I love how you know refreshing you are by way of your attitude. And what would you? I mean, what message would you like to leave with our audience, Kathy? Okay, I'm going to leave a quote that Wayne Dyer used frequently, and it was the Mark Twain quote. And I think it matches your show perfectly. 
So this quote says, you'll know it, I bet. It ain't what you know. Oh, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> I love that. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Kathy, in a minute or less, tell us, tell our audience how they can learn more about you, uh, where you might be appearing, where to get your book, uh, and so forth. Okay, so the book's available everywhere, so that's easy. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, um, it's on. I have the audiobook coming out probably within the next month. There'll be an audiobook, so that's exciting. Um, And if you want to check out the Past Life Regression Transcript, um, any of the interviews we've done, I'll put this interview on there later on my website. It's kathy-bird.com. So kathy, C-A-P-H-Y, dash bird, B-Y-R-D, dot com. And the book is called The Boy Who Knew Too Much. And, again, The Boy Who Knew Too Much is a uh, astounding read, and uh, you're going to enjoy it very much. I, I, I appreciate you sharing your, your, your spontaneous willingness to be open about it all. Kathy is refreshing. Thank you for joining Thank us you. on the show today. Thank well, you, Well, we've come to... We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, write me, email me at Eldon at eldentaylor.com or join me on Facebook. Tell us what you think of the show, particularly today. I'm really interested in your feedback on Kathy's book. Again, The boy who knew too much. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.